This morning we're turning back to Luke 22, 35 through 38 to consider these words a little bit longer. Luke 22, 35 through 38. And he said to them, When I send you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Father, just ask that you would open your word to us, that you would bring understanding to our minds. And Father, even more than that, that you would bring fire to our hearts, that our hearts would warm with the truths that maybe we already know. Lord, that we might be people who live with supernatural, powerful love that comes from Christ. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we finished this text and I felt a little bit of frustration how little we can get in in one Sunday. And so often we look at a meaning of a text And we look at the theology of the text. Uh, This particular text, Christ was teaching his disciples that this world was not going to lean into them. That this world was going to reject him and therefore reject them. And he pointed them to Isaiah 53 as the guarantee that he was going to go to a cross and die in their place. And therefore, they could expect rejection from the world. But also, in that same text, they were going to find their identity, who they were. And we looked at it through Peter's eyes. Because a few verses after this, Peter is has a literal sword misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, you're going to have to fight the fight of faith in this world. You're going to have to fight a spiritual battle. And they looked for literal swords and Jesus said, enough with this. (laughs) You don't get it right now. And so a few verses later, Peter's standing there ready already chopped the ear off a Roman soldier only to be halted by Christ. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to be like this. The text Scott read, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would be fighting. 
They didn't understand this sort of kingdom. They didn't grasp the Lord's teaching way back in Luke 6. If you want to turn there, you can see in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at verse 26. And remember what Jesus taught. So in light of rejection that's surely to come from the world, and if we're not just supposed to grab a sword and fight our enemies, what are we supposed to do? Here's what we read in verse 26. Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, he's leaning in to those who are born again, who the Holy Spirit's changed their heart because he would never say what he's going to say next to someone who wasn't born again because they couldn't fulfill it. So he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Now listen, maybe you have the strength to do the right thing to your enemy. But here's my question for you. Can you love them from the heart while you're doing it? You can say, well, Jesus says, Love your enemies. So I'm going to do the right thing to the person who hates me. But when I walk away, I'm going to do an eye roll and say, that was a joke. I'm really angry, even though I did the right thing. And Jesus says here to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you. And then he says, to bless those who curse you. Now we all know the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. But how often does that happen? Someone comes at you and you bless them. We all got to admit that in our flesh, it's impossible. To not only bless them, but to want to bless them, to love them. What is going to change Peter, who's gripping a sword because enemies are coming to take his Savior? What's going to turn him into a person that from the heart actually loves his enemies? To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to, the, 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Do you look like your Father? Are you kind to the evil and to the ungrateful? You're not going to get that in your own strength. The world knows nothing of that type of love. The world knows the type of love that if you treat me good, I'll treat you good and we'll stay in this relationship until that stops. And if that stops, if you quit treating me how I hoped you would, then I'll go find someone else. Because human love rather than supernatural love, is ultimately about getting something in response from the one you're loving. If you, if you look at the title of the sermon, only in Christ can I love my enemies, spouse, father, neighbor, boss, It can be the people closest to us that we find the hardest to love. And we can look at the theology of the world's going to reject you and you're supposed to love them and not kill them. But my question is, and the point of this sermon is, is how are you actually going to become that type of person? to where you really want to love your enemies. Jesus really wanted to die for you when you really were an enemy. He wasn't just willing to. He wanted to do it. How can I become a person who can love from the heart? Supernatural love has a fountainhead, has a place where it begins. God is love. Within the Trinity, they've always loved each other. There's never been a time when God hasn't been love. And the fountain of supernatural love is from God. There was a book that was really popular right before I got married that I would hear Christians talking about all the time. And if you've been really helped by this book, I don't mean to discourage you. There's good things in all sorts of books that have some things wrong with them. But the book was called The Five Love Languages. And the point of the book was to help couples love each other better. And the premise of the book is like this. 
We all have a love tank that needs to be filled up if we're going to function correctly. And if our love tank is filled up, then we will love better. And that premise is actually true. You cannot love if you're not filled with love. If something hasn't filled your life with love, you can't overflow with love to anybody. But here's how the book went. We all experience love in different ways. Some people like acts of service. So you got to find out, does your wife feel loved with acts of service? with quality time, with touch, with words of affirmation, or with gifts. And if you can figure out how they feel loved, then you can love them that way, and their love tank can be filled up, and you can have a better marriage. But the flaw is this. What if your spouse's fountain of love is running pretty dry. Now you're in trouble because where are you going to get the love to love them back? What if both spouses are not showing love? Well, love tanks empty, marriage over. Or Let's say they fill your love tank up a little bit. What about tomorrow? (laughs) Or what if they did pretty good acts of service, but not quite good enough? This is why in Ephesians 3, Paul prays one of the most amazing prayers. Here's what he says, Ephesians 3.14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, I get on my knees and I pray, the Apostle Paul says. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, This is getting good because this is re- this is something real, something deep down in your heart. Paul's praying that you'll be strengthened for something to happen in your inner being. And here's what it is. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be rooted and grounded in love. I'm praying that you have the strength to have Christ sitting inside you because you're thinking certain things by faith. You're believing certain things by faith. And here's the reason he's praying. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he gets down on his knees and he says that fountain of love is so high and so deep and so wide that it's going to take supernatural strength to comprehend love that surpasses knowledge. But I'm praying that they get power in their inner being with all the saints. This isn't something you do alone. Paul said to comprehend with all the saints what is the love. That's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. Because if you start drinking from that fountain and that love fills you up and you're meditating and looking on the right things, you better watch out supernatural type of love might flow out of you even for your enemies. This is how Paul talked, Romans 5.5. 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we're children of God that we're loved by God, we're forgiven by God. Hope doesn't put to shame because love has been poured in. This tank is full because God's love has been poured into it through Christ. All right? So let's go to the text that Jesus pointed to in which was Isaiah 53. He quoted verse 12, which summarizes the whole passage, which actually starts in Isaiah 52, verse thir- starting in verse 13. And here's how this works. If you don't remember who you are in Christ, you cannot love the way Christ has called you to love. You can't. So we're going to look at this text in in rapid fashion. I've listed it out in your notes so we don't have to spend much time. But I listed it out so you can meditate on it this week. Because it takes prayer to have the strength to comprehend and think, and it takes time. And what we see in this text is we see at least five things we learn about Jesus in the first few verses. And then we see nine truths about what Christ has done for you. All right? So Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Isaiah's prophesying about Christ, and he's going to act wisely. First thing to note, is the way Christ lived his life was wise. And he ended up on a cross, dead, rejected. But he lived wise. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
So he's going to be lifted up in a weird way. As he's lifted up, the world's going to see him marred. Beaten up beyond any human being there's ever been. Why? Why was he lifted up? What was the purpose? Verse 15. So that he may sprinkle many nations. That he may cleanse many nations. That he can take proud kings and have them shut their mouths and bow down to him. And what we learn here is Jesus' heart is for the nations. If it wasn't for the nations, he wouldn't end ended up on the cross. He didn't live for himself. He lived for the love of others. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. What he's saying is, people that never knew about Yahweh, never were Hebrews, are going to turn to him. And they're going to be cleansed. Gentiles are going to be saved. And then he says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, this is an important one. The Jews didn't recognize him. They were looking for a cornerstone. They found the perfect cornerstone and they threw it away. They didn't recognize him. He didn't come physically attractive. Now listen, Christ was not physically attractive. And yet, he was the most full, wise, glorious human being that ever lived. Let that just be a point to ponder this week as you consider how important your physical beauty is. Do you desire to go beyond Him? To get Christ then some? How important is it? They didn't even recognize Him. And not only did He not look beautiful, verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was a rejected man. He was. And yet, Jesus was the most secure human being that ever lived on the face of the earth without good looks and without acceptance from other people. Ponder that. How much of your identity, how much of your security is built up in pleasing man or looking a certain way? All we've, we haven't even seen what he's done for us much yet in this text. We're just seeing what he's like. 
he experienced extreme sorrow and grief. And now let's look at what he's done for you in Christ. Christian, here's where you ask God to help you understand. All right? This is, these are incredible truths. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Born and carried our griefs and our sorrows. Do you realize that Christ came to carry burdens? To carry your pain, to carry your sorrow. You're going to see this sort of language throughout the rest of this text. And then he says, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, he, was, he, was, he carried our burdens. He carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid upon Him, upon His shoulders, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. I'm sorry, I missed verse 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All that saying, Jesus took the punishment so that you can have peace. He bore it. He carried it so that you can have peace. And it might not be the type of peace you're looking for in this world, but it's the type of peace Christ had in this world. You may be rejected by this world. You may be persecuted. You will be persecuted by this world. But you can have the same peace that Christ had on this earth. And then he says, We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shear, or before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Meaning he was willingly taking this on. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. Jesus received wounds so that you can be healed. I think that's all-encompassing. You can be healed from your sin. But what if someone's abused you? What, what if someone's hurt you so bad in your life? Can you ever heal? Can you ever heal? By Christ 
being abused on the cross in your place, can you be healed? You can. Yeah, but you don't know how it emptied. It put a hole in the tank of my life. I have no self-worth anymore. I have no hope anymore. You're saying the bottom can be put back in and some sort of love can come into my life? Yes. That's why he came. That's why he kept his mouth silent when he was headed to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who was considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was sinless and heading to destruction for sin. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, though He's sinless, though slaughter for sins is coming, He keeps His mouth shut. And the Father willed to put your iniquity on Him and crush him both of them willing do you know who you are Christian do you know what's been done for you yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt Jesus is sinless and silent and God crushed him so that your guilt can be extinguished. You don't have to live in this world fearing judgment, bearing the weight of all your sins and all the ways you've fallen short of the glory of God. You don't have to live that way. You can have peace on this earth because Christ died for to be a guilt offering and he shall see his offspring oh the wonders in that word in this death he successfully purchased you as offspring for god you become adopted sons and daughters identified with jesus christ himself who are you you are in christ He's your brother. God is your father. When you pray, say, our father who art in heaven. That's who you are. That's who you are. And then he says, he shall prolong his days and the Lord shall prosper his hand. He's going to be a, yes, 
one who dies, but he's going to rule and he's going to prosper and he's a king. And then he says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus will see that it was worth it. That it accomplished what he came to accomplish. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He knew he was dying, who he was dying for. You say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know if God can forgive me. Yeah, it's with knowledge he died for you. That you can be accounted righteous. See, it'd be bad news if he said that if you would just become righteous because we would all say, well, we're all lost. Who's righteous in this room? Actually, aren't we all struggling against sin, fighting sin? But Christ came and died in your place so that you can be accounted righteous, which means God looks at the law book and his righteousness is in your place. And he shall bear their iniquities. Don't you just see a savior that's carrying your sin, carrying your grief, carrying your sorrows? Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. (laughs) This king that wins the booty that destroys all of his enemies, that plunders the kingdom of darkness, that has the full inheritance, that has all the riches. He's going to share that with you and with me. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You say, it's not fair. It's not fair that I get the spoil. You're right. It's not. And you wouldn't have gotten it except he died in your place. The perfect son of God died in your place. Yet he bore the sins of many. And this final promise he makes intercessions for transgressors. Not only did he do all that work, but he's making intercessions for you right now at the right hand of God every day, every moment. Yeah, but the world's rejecting me. Yeah, but Christ is praying for you. Christ has died for you. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's making intercessions for you. I don't know how your love tank's doing, but we've only looked at one passage. And if we meditate on this, if we we would look at it, if we would remember who we really are, it's then that supernatural love pours out of our hearts. Secondly, remember to set your minds on things above. This week I heard an Ask Pastor John uh, where he quotes Richard Baxter. Uh, uh, He wrote the Reformed Pastor. He's he's a Puritan who 
lived most of his life in physical pain. Baxter said he, after the age of 20, he doesn't think he ever went an hour the rest of his life without pain. At 35 years old, he was on what he thought was his deathbed. And he began meditating a half hour a day on the glories of heaven. And the Lord didn't take him at that time. And he lived 40 years longer. But he continued to meditate for a half hour on the glories of heaven the rest of his life because he saw how it changed his life. So it's good to meditate on who we are, but then what's our future in light of who we are? What's heaven like in light of who we are? And if you want to get the riches of his meditations, it was put in a book, uh, The Saint's Everlasting Rest is uh, the book he wrote. But listen to this quote. And I've changed it a little bit into modern English so you can understand it. But here's what he says. If you would have light and heat, if you want something in your heart, not just in your mind, if you would like light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? If you, want to, if you want to be warmed, why aren't you standing in the rays of light? He says, but because you don't often think about heaven, your soul is as a lamp, not lighted. It's ready to be inflamed, but it's not lit. You say you want light and heat, but it's not lit. Your duty as a sacrifice without fire. You know, your actions, there's, there's no heart behind it. You might do the right thing, but do you want to do the right thing? Do you, do you love the one you're doing the right thing for? So let me start at the beginning. If you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? But because you don't often think of heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted and your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal from this altar. Meditation on heaven. He's talking about daily. And see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. So he challenges his people to do what he did. Look at what's in store for you. Meditate on the glories of heaven. Meditate on who you are in Christ and what your future holds. And he says, and watch what your, happens inside your heart. And he's not saying anything the Apostle Paul didn't say. Because in Colossians 3, in verse 1, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you'll also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Set your minds on the realities of Christ. I'm going to backtrack to the first point. I want to give you one more verse because it's too good to miss. Colossians 2.9. And Paul wrote this. You probably all heard me say this before. This is a church that's tempted now having uh, trusted in Christ to add works or pagan practices or Jewish practices to their faith in Christ. So it's Jesus plus this other stuff. And so he writes the Colossians, and in Colossians 1, he shows you the glory of Christ. Just shows you how he created the universe, how everything is created by him and for him, and how he's the head of the church, and he shows you this big Christ. And then he says in 2.9, he says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It's this language of being filled. Christ is fully God. And you, Christian, have been filled in him. So Paul's saying, so why are you trying to add more water to a full cup that's already overflowing? You're going to be rejected by this world. That's okay. That's okay. You're not lacking. You're not lacking love. Christ, God, have filled you so that you can overflow. You got extra. You can't run to the end of your rope if you're seeing Christ. You could even lay down your life in the hands of your enemy if you've been filled in Him. And your eternity is secure forever. And all they can threaten you with is glory upon glory in the face of Christ. Okay, thirdly, remember not to take vengeance into your own hands. This is what Peter was doing. Romans 12.16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. What most people like to talk about, if we're honest, in our flesh, is we want to talk about views. And we like talking about views when we have the right ones and other people have the wrong ones and it's incredibly fun for us to say, oh yeah, they're so stupid. <laughs> I can't believe they believe that. Oh, I can't believe they're so evil. Paul's saying, no, this isn't a game. Sinners who were destined for hell and saved by pure grace should ever play. Don't be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. <laughs> Paul says repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you know, now listen to, listen to what the text says. The text doesn't just say, be nice. The text says this, nobody gets away with anything. <laughs> Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Which means when your enemies wrong you, you don't have to be the one to pay them back because God will pay them back, which then frees you up to feed your enemies. You see that? If you want the type of love that Jesus calls for, and, and don't get me wrong, the Bible says speak the truth in love. We need to be courageous enough to stand up in the world. Love does not pretend like everything's okay. We need to speak the truth to those that might hurt us, but we need to do it in love. If someone asks you, who are your enemies? Hopefully they can't come up with a quick answer. Because if your identity is you being in this camp and your enemies are these being in this camp, well, it seems that you've forgotten where you've come from. You've forgotten who you are. You can have the courage to speak the truth, to not hide it, to in one sense be bold with the truth, but we must always do it in love. Let's just throw politics on the pile once. If you can't partake in politics without love in your heart, I wouldn't partake in politics. But I think you should. But that means you need supernatural, Christ-like love in your heart if you're going to participate. And you're, not, you're just not going to enter in to fight your enemies. This is hard, isn't it? This is the type of love that the Apostle Paul has to pray for us that we would have the type of strength to comprehend it, to meditate on it, so that it would pour into our hearts. And this is how Paul lived. You've heard me say it a thousand times. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul lived like Richard Baxter lived. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did Isaiah 52 and 53 in my place. Did Romans 5 in my place. While I was a, an enemy of God and a sinner, Christ died for me. And it's my prayer that we're a church that doesn't just know good doctrine and the right things and end up on the right team. 
but that we're people that have experienced heat and love that literally loves those who are persecuting us and hurting us. And that's what the world will be amazed by. The world will know who the Christians are because they have a type of love that the world knows nothing about. And the reason why is because in the person of Jesus Christ, dying in your place has brought you to the fountainhead of all love and it's been poured into your heart. And we just need to be reminded who we are. That's why Paul, every letter is, here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done for you, therefore, go live this way. So we must remind each other, we must encourage each other. Father, thank you so much for the type of love that blows us away, that all as it can be called is grace and mercy, because there's nothing in and of ourselves that make us worthy. Thank you, Father, that none of our salvation is dependent on us being good enough. But that while we were enemies, you loved us. And not only did you save us from our sins, but you shared that same love with us so that we can now in turn overflow with love to one another. Lord, I pray for the marriages in this church. It's easy on a Sunday morning to show up and it seems like everyone's got it all together. But it's very likely the marriages within this room have had hearts that have been cold. There hasn't been supernatural love for one another because of so many wrongs that have been piled up. Father, I pray that you would cut through even this morning, even with friendships. Maybe it's relationships with the boss or a family member. Lord, would you give us the type of love Christ had? And would you give us the type of wisdom Christ had? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.